Welcome back to the History Havoc podcast. Once again, I am Eric Bynum. Before I get into the podcast, just want to make note that I wrote this at the end of the last school year. Uh, but now I'm just getting around to editing and putting this online. So, without further ado, let's begin. Welcome to episode two of the History Havoc podcast. As I sit here in Saturday sack detention, with just three weeks left in left in the school year, all I can think about is the Roman Empire. That may be due to the fact that I just wrote a blog post on the Colosseum. Head on over to the website at historyhavoc.com and check it out. You can also see how the Emperor Nero, who was one of my favorites, because he was a bit crazy, helped give name to the great amphitheater by being a tad bit narcissistic. Unfortunately, this episode is not going to feature the Roman Empire. As we start to take a look at the classical civilizations, that rose and fell between 600 BCE and 600 CE. But I also have Rome on the mind since that was the last place I traveled to in March, for free. If you are a teacher, or no one, and want to know how I did that, head on over to my travel blog at coffeeteachtravel.com. Not that this is a shameless plug or anything, but there you can find my adventures gallivanting around the world, sometimes for free since I teach, as well as many of my photos. I am also on Instagram at coffee underscore teach underscore travel okay enough shameless plugging of my travel website <clears throat> which you can also find links for on historyhavoc.com okay no more promise for now let's relax sit back with a nice cup of hot coffee and wreck some havoc on history you ready here we go i want to start with classical rome but i won't instead i'm going to head on over to greece since it will go on to influence rome among others classical greece was set up as a series of powerful city-states, the mountainous geography of Greece made it difficult for one group to travel and control the entire peninsula, not to mention all of the city-states on the many islands. So there were several city-states that emerged as very powerful, including Athens, Sparta, and Corinth, among others. Being on the Mediterranean Sea was important as well. Trade, mainly via the sea, was an important part of the Greek city-states and many exerted their trading might to build strong economies. Let's take a look at Sparta first off. Sparta was a military powerhouse. They focused on creating soldiers beginning with child-rearing. Boys were taken from their mothers at age 7 to begin military training. It was a harsh life for boys who endured physical abuse, hunger, and were ridiculed when showing weakness. Grown men served in the military or in the reserve until the age of 60, but this created one of the finest fighting forces for the time. It was said when a Spartan went off to war, he was to come back with a shield, or come back on it. Spartan society gave women a bit more freedom than many others at the time. While the men were off fighting, women ran the households. Free women could own property and were given an education. Women were praised for staying fit and competed in athletic competitions with the thought that fit women would bear healthy sons to fight in the army. Spartan society used slaves called helots to bear the, the brunt of their agricultural work. These slaves would come from raids on neighboring societies, which meant that the army needed to be strong in order to continue to supply the city-state with the needed slaves. As for government, Sparta was an oligarchy run by two kings, and an oligarchy is just... Um, a government where it is run by a few, okay, run by a few people. These two kings, their main jobs were to support the military and keep the helots under control. Athens, on the other hand, was quite different. 
it was most remembered for its political achievements, giving us the first form of democracy. Monarchies, which is ruled by one, ruled Athens for years. But as tyrants abused their power, the people overthrew them. In Athens, the tyrant gave way to the to a direct democracy where all citizens could vote directly on laws in a large assembly. The catch was who was considered a citizen. The first democracy took hold around 508 to 507 BCE. Cleisthenes, who was considered the father of Athenian democracy, helped lead the fight to establish the government. All citizens were allowed to vote in the assembly that was set up to make laws. However, slaves, women, Foreigners, non-landowners, and men under 20 were excluded from citizenship. So essentially, democracy was set up for rich, land-owning white men. This is going to be a long-running theme throughout history. However, if you look at how citizenship was established in antiquity, it was tied to an obligation to fight in wars, which doesn't excuse the lack of power extended to other groups, but at least puts a bit more context to it. By contrast, the United States democracy is a representative one, not direct. We elect representatives to make the laws on our behalf. However, the government in Athens itself consisted of more than just the assembly. There were three main parts. The Assembly of Demos, the Council of 500, and the People's Court. Demos meaning common people and kratos meaning rule. Demos kratos, rule of the common people. Democracy. One of the most famous Athenian leaders was Pericles. Not only did he usher in the Athenian Golden Age from 461 to 429 BCE, but he also built some of Athens' most famous works of architecture, including the Parthenon. But let's not beat around the bush here. He embezzled the money and misappropriated funds to build, build up much of Athens. The Delian League was formed after the Greco-Persian Wars as a way to protect many of the Greek city-states from the Persians. However... Athens moved from ships and soldiers tax to that of only money, then moved the League's treasury from Delos to Athens to, quote-unquote, protect it from the Persians. Only Pericles started using the money to beautify Athens. He, Bernie Madoffed, with a lot of money that made others in the League angry. Sorry, don't like bad Greek puns? My apologies. No? No, nothing? Okay. It's just like in class, I guess. But I'm laughing on the inside. Speaking of the religion of classical Athens, it was not something that lasted like democracy did. And I have to admit that talking about Greek mythology might be a myth take. <laughs> I sounded like Mike Tyson there. Get it? Myth take? Mistake? Okay, seriously, if I've got to explain it, guys. But anyway, I'm laughing on the inside, even though you may not be. Okay, puns aside, these stories were passed down teaching about ethics and the role the gods played in their lives. But these mythological gods like Zeus, Athena, and Hercules still remain popular in today's society, with books and movies being based off of their lives. But I'm going to move on because this topic is sort of my Achilles heel. No? Still nothing? Come on, you, you, I, I know I can't hear you, but I'm hoping there's some laughing out there somewhere. Anyway, what I really want to get into was the change that went on during this time. Moving away from the mythological gods and more into philosophy with some of the great thinkers of human history. It all began with Socrates. 
Okay, this is where I should go ahead and tell you that I love Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and tell my students each year to watch it. If I only had time to show it in class. One year. One year. Anyway, Socrates was one that continually asked questions to clarify another's ideas to essentially get to the core of their ideas. This became known as the Socratic method and is still used in classrooms today as a Socratic seminar. Sadly, he was eventually put to death for, quote-unquote, corrupting the youth. I mean, don't get the youth thinking for themselves and questioning authority figures. That never ends well for the one that starts it. Anyway, Socrates' student Plato kept his teacher's ideas alive. Plato opened up one of the most influential schools of all time called the Academy. Here he taught his students to question the ideas of nature and much more. He kept alive Socrates' teachings through his writings called the Dialogues, where he presented Socrates' teachings as discussions. One of the most influential dialogues was called the Republic, where he advocated for his ideal government. No, it wasn't a democracy, but instead consisted of warriors, workers, and philosopher kings. These kings would be smart and rational enough to make decisions for the entire civilization. Continuing with the teacher-pupil secession is Aristotle, who was the student of Plato. Aristotle wrote on many topics, but he stressed the golden mean by avoiding extremes. Too much or too little of something was bad. For instance, courage. Too little meant you were a coward, and too much meant you were foolhardy. He was also a supporter of logic or using reasoning. And he was the tutor of another famous historian. Only this time, it wasn't another philosopher. It was Alexander the Grape. Wait, not the candy. Sorry, that, that might be a joke only for the old. His name was actually Alexander the Great. We will come back to him in due time, though. It is now time to pull the rug out from the Greeks and head west to Persia. Around 559 BCE, Cyrus the Great led the Persians to conquer most of the lands from the Aegean Sea to India, forming the first Persian Empire, or as it was also called, the Achaemenid Empire. Cyrus was a great warrior and statesman, and has influenced historical figures from Alexander the Great to Thomas Jefferson. He was a biblical figure, and is mentioned in several books of the New Testament, including Second Chronicles, when the story is told of Cyrus freeing the Jews in Babylon and returning them home, along with a decree to rebuild their temple in Jerusalem that was destroyed by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar II, who was mentioned in our first episode. Cyrus was also known for how he ruled. He set up a multi-state empire that was run by a governor. And what was a governor in ancient Persia? According to Admiral Akbar, it's a trap. Get it? Just a little Star Wars humor there for you. Check out my blog for the meme, or as I like to say in class because I love the looks on the students' faces, a meme Unless it's from France, then it's a meme. Anyway, I will post that meme on the blog. Anyway, a satrap was a governor that ran the state for the king, super, supervising military recruitment. He maintained order, and he kept records for the state. This system proved successful and was continued long after the death of Cyrus the Great. Cyrus died in 530 BCE. His, his son, Cambyses, would rule for eight years, continuing on many of the traditions started by his father. He expanded the empire into Egypt, but then died suddenly in 522 BCE. The cause of his death is disputed by many historians. But what is known is that after the man who took over for him, 
again disputed as to his true identity. Was it his brother Bardidia or a Zoroastrian priest named Gamata? There was a coup d'etat led by Darius I to take over. Darius would go on to rule for 36 years, and he expanded the empire even more during his time. Darius I was known for building the capital city of Persepolis and the Royal Road. Persepolis, which sits in modern-day Iran, was once a thriving capital with an impressive royal palace. However, the city is nothing but ruins today, and we will get to why and how momentarily. The Royal Road was an important breakthrough for Persia. Expanding some 1,500 miles across the empire, it was a network of roads that helped Darius I rule his empire more efficiently. The road served not only the government by allowing messages to be sent quicker from satrap to satrap, but it also allowed trade to flow easier throughout the empire. Darius constructed caravanserai, always butcher that word, which were essentially inns and markets for people traveling the road. Check out the blog for a short video on what they were like. To fund all of these projects, Darius instituted regular tax payments. He also created a common currency to regulate trade and taxes. As the king proceeded to conquer new and new lands, Darius allowed the newly conquered to keep their culture and traditions. He did not force upon them the religion of the Persian Empire, Zoroastrianism. Instead, all he asked for was taxes and men to fight in the military. Speaking of Zoroastrianism, this was one of the first monotheistic religions, meaning the worship of only one god. Their god was Ahura Mazda, which means wise lord. And yes, it was one of the inspirations for the Japanese car company name. The religion, begun by the prophet Zarathustra, be believed in a heaven and hell, free will, and judgment after death. All of these ideas are also seen in other popular monotheistic religions, such as Judaism and Christianity. However, as great as Darius I was, he did make a move that would lead Persia to begin its decline and eventual destruction. Darius I continued to expand his empire into Thrace and Macedonia, who became a vassal kingdom submitting voluntarily. However, several Greek regions in Asia Minor began to rise up against the Persian rule and began the Ionian Revolt. Athens supported this action and sent troops and ships to aid in the fight. This would wind up angering Darius, who decided to form a campaign against Athens. After the first one failed due to weather and hostile forces in Thrace, he sent a second campaign of 20,000 troops, only to have them defeated at the Battle of Marathon. This prompted Darius to begin the formation of a larger invasion force, but this time he would lead it and not his generals. However, Darius would die before the invasion would take place, leaving everything up to his son Xerxes. He set out in 480 BCE from Sardis with an estimated 60,000 troops, including 10,000 highly trained soldiers called the Immortals. Herodotus, also known as the father of history, estimated Xerxes' troops to be around a million, although modern scholars do not agree. Xerxes met resistance from Sparta at the Battle of Thermopylae, which is the setting for the Hollywood movie 300. Xerxes, unable to move through the pass at Thermopylae, eventually finds a way around with the help of a Greek and destroys the force holding up the Persian army. But the small force that was there was not there to defeat the Persian army. Instead, they were there to delay long enough for Athens to be abandoned, and this is where they were successful. 
As Xerxes marched on an empty Athens, he was angered and burned the city to the ground in response to the Greeks burning Sardis years earlier. This is eventually going to turn into a, you burn my city, now I'm going to burn yours fight. Xerxes and the Persian army were then lured out into a naval fight in the Battle of Salamis. The Greek fleet was vastly outnumbered. They were said to have around 375 ships compared to the possible 1,207 of the Persians. However, this number is disputed as many numbers are from this era. More modern estimates put the total number somewhere between 6 to 800, still outnumbering the Greeks by a massive margin. However, the Greeks used tactics to destroy up to a third of the Persian navy. While it was not a total disaster for Xerxes, it was a setback. And while issues in Babylon were cropping up, he returned to the empire to settle things. Xerxes left a small force behind, but within a short time they were defeated by the Greeks. This was the last offensive that the Persians would make into mainland Greece, and eventually would lead to the total destruction of the empire. But that is coming up shortly in another episode. So we will end here, and we will catch up with the Greeks and Persians next time in our next podcast. Be sure to check out the blog at historyhavoc.com and see videos and images that go along with the podcast. I'll leave you with a quote out of one of my favorite books, The Four Agreements by Miguel Ruiz. And the quote goes, Humans punish themselves endlessly for not being what they believe they should be. End quote. All too often we are hard on ourselves because we feel that we should be better or something else entirely. But we have to remember that we are perfect the way we are. So as it says in one of my other favorite books, love yourself. I'd highly recommend checking out the book. It is one of my all-time favorites and has changed the way I live my life, or at least try to live my life. Thanks again for listening to episode two. We'll be back next week with another episode following up on this uh, with Greece, Persia, and we'll get into Rome. But I want to thank you. Uh, Feel free to share on any social media that you're a part of, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Thanks again. We'll see you next time, and uh, take care.